0: Welcome to the Nehemiah Community Transformation Podcast. I'm Eli Steenlidge, Nehemiah's Director of Communication, and I get the privilege today of bringing you inside one of our staff training sessions to hear Reverend Dr. Alex G, founder and president of Nehemiah, share about what visionary leadership looks like. In the process, he also tells stories of Nehemiah's history and legacy in Madison and Wisconsin and beyond. Nehemiah cultivates character, leadership, and economic development for the African-American community through culturally grounded programs. Nehemiah has always valued leaders with lived experience that gives them the ability to walk alongside others with a deep understanding and keep building leaders along the way. We think our organization culture is something special, and we value what everyone brings to the table. So you will also hear some of our staff jumping in to share their questions, stories, and perspectives. As you may know, Reverend Dr. G believes that history is vitally important to understanding our current position and where we can go forward. When we reflect on our history, it can profoundly inform how we lead. I can't think of a better way of kicking off Nehemiah's 30th anniversary celebration, which we are celebrating all year long. So pull up a seat with our staff and listen in to hear some real insights into how we do our work.
1: I want to just jump right into some lessons about about leadership and visionary leadership too, because some of us are visionary leaders. I don't necessarily wish that on anyone. It's fun sometimes, but it's also quite lonely. But just to give us some things to think about, and because this is a great year of commemoration, Nehemiah turns 30 this, this fall, I want to reflect and make sure that I'm pouring into my team. I don't want people to just say they have worked here. But I want you to take some of the, some of the, um, uh, the nuggets of what's going into establishing this organization and allowing it just to help you all um, to grow as folks and professionals. So um, about 30 to 33 years ago, I was preaching this uh, series out of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And these are Old Testament stories about the uh, children of Israel who are in exile, which means you get removed from your community and you're kept in some enemy. Territory. And when it was time to come back home, their city and their temple had been burnt, and the community had to be rebuilt. And it was rebuilt by the people who were going to inhabit it, not built by people from the outside. And so as I was preaching about this, there was a gentleman who worked at Park Bank who was the reinvestment officer. And that's that's the person who makes sure that banks are putting money back into the community. And so that officer basically said, you know, you ought to create this nonprofit. And you ought to name it Nehemiah because that's what you've been preaching about because it's about rebuilding the city and, and and Madison's going through some things and we need to have it rebuilt. And so that was really the impetus behind it. i had grown up in South Madison and I saw that things were changing. And um, and I saw that the black community had doubled from, from recently, from basically from 1980 to 1990. And Madison was freaking out. And, um, but I noticed that black youth were going to mental health Um, hospitals and going to Lincoln Hills and other places at a rate that the white students weren't, the white kids weren't. Our, Our numbers of Black teachers, Black administrators, Black doctors, Black judges were not increasing. The major institution that kept up with the diversity growth of Madison was law enforcement, was the police department. They're the only entity that really kept up with it. So the thought about Nehemiah was creating a way for those of us who met in college or grew up together to give back to the community in a way that was meaningful and culturally relevant. And we thought we could relate to folks. And this was innovative back in the day because there weren't black social service agencies. You know, we had NAACP and Urban League, but they weren't really, they they didn't have social workers and counselors and therapeutic mentors. And so we said we wanted to infuse the system with people who could could do this work. So the State Journal got a win that we're creating this this coalition that was gonna strengthen South Madison. And so when we do get copies of it, I actually have the printing press. Uh, It's all digital now, but they used to use real plates uh, that they would print from. I have that plate in my office, but it talks about what we wanna do. And it's uncanny, you all, when you read it, we talk about things that we're doing today. This is written in the fall of um, 92. so there's two articles in here. One is about the coalition aims to help the South side. That's the middle piece. Then they did something about my calling, which I won't go on time to talking about that, but starting at 14, um, just having a sense that I want to do something for the community. And then it also talks about the churches uniting on mission, because one of the places that we reached out to first was Somerset Circle. What's it called now, Parker Place? Now here's how it's evolved. When I was a kid, it was called Les Maisonettes, which is little mansions. If you look at how it's structured, that's what it was called. And the children, my white friends who went to Leopold, lived there because their parents were getting their PhDs. And when their parents got their PhDs, they got out of Dodge. They moved to the west side, they moved to the east side, they went to the Follett, they they moved out far on the west side. So it's very interesting. South Madison was always a diverse community but it was it was for graduate students it was almost like eagle heights in the community a lot i can think about two or three families who live there because their parents are doing phds a couple things i want us to understand is that leaders believe in transcendence that's part of what makes us leaders leaders aren't people who just Want to be the boss. A lot of people think that, and that's why they want to be leaders. They want to, they want to call the shot. But leaders are really taking people someplace. They don't get them caught up in a quagmire. They don't keep them stagnant. They don't, they don't, they, the goal is not to frustrate people. You want to measure if someone's a leader, do they believe in transcendence? And do they communicate that in a way that makes others want to transcend? And transcendence means to go beyond a boundary. It means to excel. It means to to show a sense of superior knowledge or wisdom or or insight. And so leaders have to believe in transcendence, not just for the communities, but for themselves. Because if you're moving as a leader to try to address an issue or move a group of folks and it doesn't change you, then by definition, you aren't a leader. So a leader has to believe that, that they can transcend to do things they've never done before. Leadership should always be stretching us. And so if we, if we want to be leaders or so that we can have it easier, that's not really what leaders do. But again, they believe in transcendence, that we could go somewhere. Getting back to, to Aaron's question, we believe that South Madison was better than what was happening within it. We believe that it deserved more, that it deserved better. But we also believe that we needed black people to direct those happening to and for black people. So I want people in Nehemiah to understand when we talk about being culturally competent and culturally relevant and why it's important to relate to the people that are going through the things that we do in our program. This is deep within our DNA. And so we hold to this. And this is why even when people want to be volunteers, they must understand our history, our history and transcendence, our need to be at the helm in leading—they um, got to really deeply understand this because what made unique, what made Nehemiah unique, right from the beginning, was that we believe that the community could help itself. The other thing is leaders respond to crises without creating them. Ideally, this is, um, yeah, the fire in Somerset Circle. Bye, babies. Yeah. How many died, Miss Jackie? Was it five or seven? It was five babies. Five babies who died. And the dispatcher, the dispatch from the fire department was singing, Somerset is burning down. It was on record. They played it. Coop, you were you a kid. I don't know if you remember that. But they were singing, Somerset is burning down. I think the police did. Am I getting this right, Miss Jackie? The fire department had to come from Madison because because they were in the town of Madison. Yeah, And so the closest okay. fire department didn't respond. Right. Yeah. yeah. And they stood there and wouldn't let, like the babies was at the top of the stairs and people could see them flailing and wailing and the police officers and the fire department wouldn't let, wouldn't go in and wouldn't let anybody else go in either. Mm -hmm. It was horrible horrible for my kids. I I wasn't up here during that time, but I remember the fact that because the fire department is basically right next door to Somerset, Fontaine Court, and then Somerset with an old police station and then um, the fire department. But yeah, I wasn't up here then, but I heard a whole lot about it. Um, I was there. Now that fire department right on Badger Road didn't respond because they're in Madison. This was town of Madison. So they had to wait for the town of Madison fire department to come. Is that how it happened? Yeah, it was something like, yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. (laughs) But that happened and people started saying, What's happening to Black people? And they were talking more about the mama partying down at Pearlies or Peas than the fact that these babies died and that people couldn't get in. And so this whole thing is going on like she made the fire start, but five babies lost their, you know, lost their lives. And so it was around that time that people are saying, who's speaking up for Black people? Gee, you need to do something, you need to say something. And so many times you'll see when people are merging into leadership roles, it's in a response to some crisis. So you gotta find a way to step up, to shake up the, the status quo, but you don't create crisis because you don't, you don't communicate well or you destroy teams. And so when I say without creating crises, I don't mean that you avoid speaking up, but this is what motivated me to move into leadership. And visionary leaders see what isn't, but can be if people believe and work together that they see what isn't, it can be. So I'm making this more specific to because I'm a visionary leader. Um, and I, as a visionary leader, I don't just sit down and try to imagine what can be. I'm usually struck with a moment of inspiration. I'll hear something or see something and think, hmm, I wonder if anyone has done this before, or I wonder how this would work, or I wonder how this might go over. And so visionary leaders understand that they're seeing something, and if you're if you're a visionary leader, let me just help you. Your visions don't have time steps, so you don't know if it's tomorrow or month or a year. Part of what I saw in the early 90s is just happening. It's just happening 40 years later. Uh, Thirty five, 40 years later. And so if you consider yourself a visionary leader, if you like using that terminology. You've got to be patient. You've got to see it. What is it? but can be even when no one else sees it, even when no one else tells you it's crazy. Um, There had not been a a, a community-based Black-focused nonprofit like ours. It was created from a faith-based perspective. Um, At the time, Union Tabernacle Church created it, or the leaders of Union Tabernacle created it. It It's always been separate, separate boards, separate finances, they have never been joined. Um, But to try to convince people that we're supposed to do something outside, There are a lot of people that get on board now and say, yeah, I like what you're doing. But in the early days, it's like, "Mm, I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see it. Um, And so visionary leaders, you know, you got to see what it is. Write it down, document it, but get it deep in your heart because almost everything will come at you to make you forget it. The reason I put family on the left picture, this is early on in the journey, is because family volunteered. Family volunteered their time. They did stuff for free to help get this up and going because they believed that it was a vision that was given to me. And a lot of times I get credit for doing it, but mom was a therapist. The lady was a social worker. Jackie was a business major. And they sat down with me and helped me write and create these things to make them happen. Um, When we wrote the initial Nehemiah um, application, a funding application for the community foundation, it was right after Jackie and I lost our first baby. And I basically, I was mad at the community. I was mad at God. Not so much the community. I was mad at God. And I didn't understand how, how, how come my baby died. And so I almost failed to write the proposal. And Laleda and David Smith said, look, um, we want there to be a legacy in this community. And we feel that there's already a loss with you and Jackie losing this baby. Um, we, don't, we don't want the enemy to get any, any more um, play out of this. And so if nothing else, in honor of the baby, your baby, your daughter who passed away at birth, um, do this. And so they talked me into doing it. We went over to the church. Um, there's a there's a there's there's an office right next to the first youth room. It's right off the fellowship area. I think it's sort of administrative space. I think Ozan and some of the youth people use it. That was a church office. We went in there and we pulled an all-nighter. And we wrote that grant application to the community foundation i think it's the hardest we ever worked for twenty thousand dollars we wrote that sucker all night we got it turned in and now it's 30 years later and if we hadn't done that we wouldn't be here um this group on the right are a group of folks who are part of our community support specialist program and this is when nehemiah became decentralized it's when it's when nehemiah um was placed in six neighborhoods around the community and we hired people who were called, they were peer supporters, they were, they were community support specialists. We created that name terminology. Jackie Hunt was hired under that program, Tequila, Estella, others. And they helped to put Nehemiah on the map because we worked with Joining Forces for Families, social workers. And it was the first time that a Black-led entity served Southeast Asian, Latino, Black and white communities. Nehemiah did that as a first for a number of years and they did it well. Um, Just one thing I'll also say about visionary leadership, you must know your goals and not let people talk you out of it. Our county contract manager said, called me up and said, Reverend G, we're so glad you all got this proposal, but make sure that you don't hire people that the community can't relate to. Now, people with JDs were applying for these programs and this program was paying um, $10 an hour. It was t- and, this, and they were doing social work. They, like, like they, there's nothing that Jackie Hunt is doing now that she didn't do for ten dollars an hour. Tequila, Estella, Tommy, Alice. That's what they did. Take me to the hospitals like it's all called peer this peer that they were doing it before it even had a name. They were doing it. The social workers were threatened because they said we make twenty dollars an hour. They're going to fire us and hire these high school dropouts to take our jobs. They weren't warm to them. The county said, don't hire people, you know, like hire people who don't have their driver's license, hire people who may have bad credit, hire people. I said, well, why? And they said, well, because we don't want them to intimidate the community. I said, Nehemiah is about lifting the community. And if I'm going to hire staff, they're going to come up to Nehemiah's standards. But I'm not about to hire you some house Negroes so that y'all can feel comfortable. If I'm going to hire people, they are going to pull the community up. I'm not playing that game with you all. They're like, oh, 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 OK, OK, we just we just thought. So they were telling me they were telling me just to hire people who just sit around with folks playing big whiz all day and um, and not really bring them up. Um, but that's the pressure. When you are a leader, don't let people lower your standard. If you know what your people need, your group, the group that you're serving, don't move from that. But I had to stay on point that 30 years later. Here we are. Visionary leadership is often misunderstood by the visionary in particular, but it considers context. It considers content. Visionary leadership, or just, we can just translate, we can we can just put leadership in it as well. Uh, it considers contentment, community, cost, creativity, collaboration, and commitment. You see, I like alliterations. I like, I'm, missing, I'm, more, I'm on the letter C today. It considers the context. We had that Somerset fire. The black community was growing. There was a dearth of Black leadership. And none of them were from Madison and young. A lot of them ran NAACP and Urban League and other things. And so they basically held it down for the Black community. Uh, But I also knew Madison was changing while still saying, we want to be home for everybody. That was the context for Nehemiah. And Black children were going to mental health hospitals and going to youth um, incarceration facilities in alarming rates and not getting the services that hearts were getting. The content is that I had to figure out what my team had to offer, because you can't just write checks like you don't have to balance them. So not only did I know the context of what was happening in the community, I had to also know what was among me, what was among us. And so I had to assess in our congregation, who knows business, who knows social services, who knows fundraising. So when you're planning something, you can't act like the context doesn't matter and what you currently have doesn't matter. That's what you start with and you build with it and you invest in it. If it's volunteers, it's volunteer, but let them be good volunteers. But content, what you have is very important. Consider contentment. You have to live within your means to be a visionary leader because if we had overspent and tanked Nehemiah's account and its social capital in the early days, we wouldn't be this organization 30 years later that's leading the community and not, you know, we started by just serving young black kids and then young black teens and then black parents. And then we started doing youth employment. We didn't get into that community support specialist program for like five years. We didn't get into reentry until like our 20th year. And so we had to build that social capital and do what we did really well to grow and expand. But the framework for that, the framework for that came in the early days where we said we're going to work with young children for academic, um, bringing them up to their appropriate academic levels, ACE program. We said we're going to work on youth leadership development. We were using things like leadership development in the early 90s, family empowerment, reentry is that. Ms. Jackie, what you're doing with foster is that. And then the fourth area was economic development. And that's that's the employment that we do with reentry. It's the jobs we create. It's also the center creating jobs. And a framework for for um, for people having employment opportunities, or economic development opportunities. This all grew, but the framework existed 30 years ago. So if you got a vision for something, leaders write it down, be able to go back to it, keep rehearsing it, study it, become adept at it. But sometimes that stuff takes decades to unfold. People were thinking about Google way before Google. Pixar I was thinking about the Toy Story. And and all of these things they did all that, I I think, like in one sitting, this one will pay for this one. and Then Toy Story one will pay for Toy Story two. Then it'll pay for cars. Like they plan that all out. We're too impatient. We want stuff to happen today. And we have to build because even if someone dropped a million dollars on us, I didn't have the staff to spend that. I didn't have the bookkeeping services to keep it. And we didn't have the credibility in the community to really live into that. You got to live within your means. And that's what I mean by contentment. If you got one staff, then get then treat them well and get like three FTE out of it without killing them. If you've only got two board members, let them be on point. But be content with what you have, but that doesn't mean you're satisfied. You still shoot for things, but you know how to be joyful with what you have. So we celebrated ACE and Youth Employment Program. And as we built, we celebrated it. When re-entry was just one or two people, we celebrated it. Uh, Before we had any houses, we just had one building. We celebrated it. And then we started adding. Learn to be content and let that success feed and breed your next. It considers community. What does the community want? We have to ask people in the community, what would you like to see? You can't just go in some back room and just create stuff for people and expect them to show up. So with your programming and things, ask people, ask people, ask them for their insight ahead of time, and then evaluate your activities where they give you feedback. Cost, what is it going to take? What do you have? How do you make this work? That's really important. What what is your vision going to cost so that you know what to go after? Because the money's out there, but you have to assess what the true cost is and then go for it. You know, this center is going to cost 40 million. We need to raise 36. We're going to find it. But it took us a little while to really assess it because we need the exact square footage, programming, and listening to the community. We can't just put a price tag. On it. We had to do some work to know the true cost. Then, once you know the true cost, you can go out and get it. We have to consider creativity. We didn't have a phone system, and so we went to I went to Radio Shack and bought um, four intercoms and ran long wires down the hall. and And my office was channel one. Another was channel two. And the phone would ring, and then the receptionist, her name was Holly, uh, would just push the intercom and say, "Hey, Pastor, you got a call. You got a call." Um, You got to call because we didn't have multiple lines. You got to call because she put on a hold and I know how to pick it up. Um, We had computers that only had 40 megabytes of of screens and 40 megabytes of data. And and our IT guy, or we called it comp side, said you will never, ever utilize all this space. 40 megabytes is more than you'll ever use. My Apple Watch uses more than that. I have apps on my iPhone that uses more than that. Um, But we were creative. We made it work. And so we got a wall built in my office. I could have some privacy. We turned the bedrooms into offices. We knocked down the dividers in the basement where many of you work. That was basement and filled up with laundry and stuff and room dividers. We knocked it out. We are creative and we're nothing else. Um, um, Contentment makes you be creative. And so be creative in in what you got and make it work and make it look good. Andrea Dearlove is one of our newer staff members. And she said from the outside, Nehemiah seemed like this huge conglomerate. She comes into her first staff meeting and said, wait, it's only these handful of folks. They're doing all of this stuff that we know out in the community. Like she, I guess she expected to see like cubicles and like we are a Google or something, but we're creative. We got a phone line, that phone line we got, where you, where you, you know, you're sitting at that phone, Miss Shamika, that costs $10,000. I didn't understand phones that cost $10,000. That didn't make sense to me. But we made it work and we're still growing. We can still add. That phone system will let you transfer to someone's cell phone. Now, we don't know how to do it because we we didn't have enough vision to learn how to do that. But that system can say, I'm sorry, Anthony's not in the office just a moment and actually transfer. But we bought it because it grew. But we it grew as, as we needed it. Collaboration. We worked with churches. We worked with other groups. We got in-kind donations. Visionary leadership understands. I just see it, but I can't build it. Most people are visionary leaders can't build what they see. And when we do, we often make a mess uh, because we don't understand the, the intricate details of making something happen. And so as visionaries, we have to learn that our strength is in casting the vision and then motivating the team to come together to get it done. The people who dreamed up Disney didn't build Disney. Others drew up the design. You get, you know, landscape work done, you'll have an artist that may come out and design your yard, but the people who plant the trees might be someone else. And so as visionary leaders, you have to learn to trust others because it is not your vision, it's just given to you. You're a conduit, it's given to you. But you have to bring others around you and your work is to nurture them and listen to them and listen to them in a way that it makes it easier for them to listen to you. That was a tough lesson to learn because as a visionary, I thought it was supposed to happen now. I thought that I knew all the details and actually thought that I could make it work, but I, I can't. I can see it clear as day and I can I know when it's off, but I do not know how to put the plans together. I know we're supposed to be there, but I don't know if we're supposed to get there by boat, by car, by walking, by e-bike. I don't know how to get there and for so, well, like Harry and others to come along and say, oh, here's how you build a bridge to there. Here's how you build a path or a tunnel. I have no idea. Is it a bridge? Is it a tunnel? I don't, I don't know, but I just know. That's the goal. And we need to be there soon. And so as visionary leaders, as a visionary leader, I had to learn how to really listen to people about how to fundraise, how to build a board, how to get these things. They were so convinced that the vision of Nehemiah was real, but they worked with me to get there. And it takes, it it considers commitment. You're going to be a leader. You can't be short-tempered. You can't be impatient. You got to stick to it. One of my mentors, Wayne Gordon out of Chicago says, if you're going to serve kids, serve them for a whole generation. If you're going to serve kindergartners, stay with them until they're out of high school. Don't, don't come in and get in people's lives for two or three years and say, well, we're going some other direction. Leadership is about commitment. And we did that with our kids. That's why I like showing those pictures. That's why we love Shamika's story or the story of Jakeisha or others. Allie was in our youth programs. We love the fact that we found a way to keep up with the kids who are in our program. Jamal Eubanks in that picture with his arms folded mad because he didn't think he was going to grow anymore because he wanted to be a basketball star. Um, we still will talk about ideas that he has, and this man's in his 40s, and we've been talking. I pulled him to the side when he was crying one day at Ace, and said, what's wrong with you? He said, I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to grow anymore. He has other issues. He's not worried about growing, but he's a dad now, and he's in grad school, and he's a professor. He's an instructor. There's other things we talk about. But the, one of the strengths of Nehemiah that I would say, if anyone says, well, tell me about some of the strengths. They often will talk about, well, we have a visionary leader and Reverend G did, this, did this. The strength of Nehemiah is that we loved the people we served and we stayed the course with them. We absolutely loved them. And they felt that. We, they knew that they were loved. There was a place that they could go. We might not have the, the best facilities. We might not have had the best food. We might not have had the best transportation, but somebody's going to listen to you. Somebody's gonna care. If your mama's sick, somebody dies. Somebody from Nehemiah is gonna show up. And so, folks who are new, I want you to understand that as we're, you're building, p- because on this, because I and the team with me considered context and content and contentment and community and cost and creativity and collaboration and commitment. And because we have done these things over thirty years, growth now is easy. Opportunities now are easy. The hard work has happened in building and drying the foundation what we do now if based upon this historical context we can get anywhere we need to go we can get anywhere we need to go we can get money we can get staff we can get facilities we can create programs we can grow we can do it because the foundation has happened and what we're doing today is looking back in order to understand why we must move forward but the success today is not just that we have great people we have great people because of context, contentment, content, community, cost, creativity, collaboration, and commitment. So that's just part one of just my insights about leadership, but particularly visionary leadership here at Nehemiah.
0: Thank you for listening to the Nehemiah Community Transformation Podcast. Go to Nehemiah.org to find out more about Nehemiah and our Justified Anger Initiative, which works to eliminate racial disparities by developing relationships, solutions, and systems.